Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Last week's interview with uh, Jay Patel, where we discussed the topic of creativity, is a great segue into today's episode, because we are going to have a conversation with an artist that has chosen creative photography as his trademark of sorts. This is the Traveling Image Makers podcast, and I'm your host, Ugo Che. Unfortunately, my co-host Ralph Velasco couldn't make it today. He's in Vietnam, busy leading uh, a tour, but hopefully he will be back next week with a uh, with another episode. So let's go back to this week's guest, whose name is Bond, Simon Bond. <laughs> Good afternoon, Simon. I guess you heard that joke many times already. I have heard that a few times, but you've uh, made a slight mistake there. You should be um, making the S a more Sean Connery sh. Sh. Simon Bond. Simon Bond. That's more Scottish. <laughs> So uh, our guest this week, Simon Bond, is a professional freelance travel photographer who especially focuses on the Asian continent. Uh, I think people who have been following this, uh, this podcast for some time know how much I love Asia. And again, my co-host Ralph loves Asia too. He's just been to India and now he's in Vietnam. So this is a continent that we love talking about and we are happy to have Simon here today. Um, so Simon has uh, cut his teeth in the darkroom, as he says in his biography, since uh, the age of 15, where he learned how to use an SLR camera and subsequently moved into the digital world. Um, and I, I guess you've been shooting digital since then exclusively, right, Simon? Yeah, that's correct. Um, at times I'm tempted to um, dabble in film again, but um, thus far it's been um, digital photography I've used. So would you like to, to add anything uh, in terms of your, your bio, your life as a photographer? Um, I think you've, um, broadly speaking, uh, covered up to um, when I moved to South Korea in that, yes, I, I worked in a darkroom for a period of time. That was a lot of fun. Um, it's different times, but the, um, the sort of the, the, the thrill of, taking the photographs but then being able to go and get them developed yourself that day uh, as opposed to having to go to a chemist and get it done um, it uh, it slightly mirrors today's digital world which is much more instantaneous in terms of your results but if you have access to a darkroom you can photograph in the day and uh, then go to the darkroom and um, pretty much get your results at least onto a contact strip that same day if you work hard uh, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose in that sense, that was an early forerunner of what my life was like as uh, now as a digital photographer. Okay, good. Um, so you, you hinted at the fact that you're now living in South Korea. Uh, we'll talk about South Korea and Asia in general a little bit uh, later in this episode. But first, I would like to uh, ask you about your, your 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 website, your main website, I guess. It's creativephotographyschool.com, right? So I think that the, the fact that it's all about creative photography and, and it's a school. So it's, it's a learning resource for people who probably want to uh, learn how to be more creative in their photography. Can you explain a little bit more what that means in practice? 
Okay, um, obviously, I'm not going to say that I own creative uh, photography. There are many photographers who do similar styles to me. Um, and um, there are photographers who've taken what I've done and um, progressed with that. And uh, likewise, I've seen other people's uh, work and uh, I've taken that into my own style of photography and improved my own work. Uh, so I think to, to begin with, um, with creative photography, it's um, a collaborative community work uh, more than anything. Um, but at the same time, I like to think I've got a few um, things that I do with the creative photography um, that are unique to my style of photography. So um, I've, uh, broadly speaking, um, got two main strands of um, creative photography, which I do, which is the refraction photography work and the light painting photography work, although you could probably count things like long exposure or infrared photography and, and such as um, creative photography styles as well. So how you, would you define creative photography? Isn't everything that we photograph in a way creative, the act of creating? Yeah, I mean, you are creating, um, but um, certain photographs are much more um, technical um, in the way that they're produced, uh, in that you can, um, so I'm going to just pick on a style of photography. Let's say you are a, um, a real estate or, um, uh, architecture photographer who, who photographs houses, um, that then go onto websites for, um, people to sell their houses. Um, obviously, you know, there's a particular way of recording recording that photograph um, and you wouldn't use creative uh, techniques uh, in that you want to just simply record the house get a good composition um, and an attractive photograph um, likewise when it comes to uh, reportage photography um, although creative te techniques uh, I have seen those used in um, newspapers generally speaking uh, people are aiming to um, capture the scene that they have in a well-composed and technically good photograph, but beyond that, you don't see um, techniques like zoom bursts or refraction photography or light painting used that much. Um, so I think there's a strand of photography which is very recording the image, but in a technically proficient way. And there is a strand of photography which um, looks to uh, challenge the viewer over what they're seeing um, and how you could go about producing an image uh, which as much as possible you try to get in camera as opposed to using post-processing techniques, although post-processing techniques obviously have their place. So in a way, can we say that creative photography, at least as you mean it, means something sometimes, not exclusively, but creating something that while it is there, it is not uh, CGI, it's not created at the computer, you're still creating something that is is there, but presenting it in a way that our eyes would not be able to see in the same way. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking you're, of you're, your you're, light painting, for instance, right? Yeah, you're adding to the scene. Um, you, you, you have a scene in front of you and you think, how can I um, make my own story with what's in front of me by adding certain elements to that frame? Um, and um, in today's world of digital photography, it's actually a slightly um, disappointing that sometimes you um, somebody will see a photograph which they would just automatically assume was post-processed to get that effect. Um, that's 
almost hardwired into many people's minds that that's the way uh, an image that they see that's slightly different to just an ordinary scene was was made. Um, I mean, it struck me even in Malaysia that um, me and my friend um, Pete, who obviously you know, um, we, we were hanging out with uh, an, another Malaysian photographer who's pretty famous out there um, and um, is an extremely good photographer, yet he saw one of the light painting photographs which I'd taken several years ago and um, was surprised when I told him, yeah, that's all in camera. You didn't, I didn't use Photoshop at all to create this image. Um, so that, that struck me. And he said, yeah, I mean, when you post that, you need to sort of make clear that this is straight out of the camera. Yeah. Uh, can you maybe make us a, a little list of the main techniques that you use and what they mean? Because, okay, uh, light painting, many people know what that is, right? You have a long exposure and you use something like a flashlight or something to paint over the objects during the course of the exposure. And then right. everything goes into one frame. But things like what is refraction photography, for example, and w what else, what other things do you practice? Okay, refraction photography um, is, um, broadly speaking, uh, in the way I would um, generally use it, um, it's using a, a glass ball, sometimes called a crystal ball, and these days remarketed uh, as a lens ball, uh, to uh, take photographs where you will see a background image um, presented within the glass ball that's been inverted, i.e. it's upside down in the ball, but the right way up in the background. Um, so this is actually the way that lens optics work in a camera. So everybody who takes photographs actually uh, practices refraction photography without perhaps knowing it. Um, and uh, in effect, when you use a glass ball, you are um, using an external lens optic, which is where the uh, rebranding name lens ball came from. Um, so that's actually uh, only one aspect of refraction photography, because um, it's not only glass balls that will refract the light. Um, you can use prisms for refraction photography, which I've started to experiment with in recent times. Uh, you can use um, any spherical shaped object which has a denser mass than air. So if you put water into a wine glass, that will create refraction. Um, you've probably seen the water drop photographs, which have um, uh, you use an external strobe to freeze the water drop mid-air. Um, if you have a background image to that, you'll get refraction inside the uh, water drop. So there are many ways that refraction photography can be practiced. But the main way that I practice refraction photography is using a glass ball. And what else? Is it light painting and any other techniques that you use? Right, okay. So light painting, uh, to me, I would divide into two categories. There is uh, light painting where you move a light source in front of the camera. And there is uh, light painting, which is called kinetic light painting, where you move the camera and the light source stays steady. If that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I was looking at one of your tutorials actually where you do you show how to do light painting by rotating the camera, which is yeah. to me it was completely novel. I had never thought of that. Uh, can you maybe uh, explain that the technique a bit? And we will put if you 
would like to send us some photos that illustrate it, or we'll put a link to the article anyway in the in the show notes, so people can who are just listening to this can get an idea of the kind of effect that you that you get, which is again to me was uh, was new. I'm going to try it myself oh, <laughs> as soon as yeah. I find it. Another few people have uh, um, described this technique to have said, "Yeah, this is actually something quite interesting to try." Um, and um, again, I mean, I'm not going to claim total ownership of this. I haven't come across other people's work with this type of light painting before. But if you do some searching on the Internet, you can see some quite uh, fascinating kaleidoscope type images that you can create through kinetic light painting. Um, so uh, and yes, I am going to be sharing some photographs which show this um, type of technique. Um, so what you see is a two-stage photograph. Um, the first stage uh, you are light painting and the second stage you fix the camera in position so that it picks up the uh, background object that you want to make the main focus of your image. Uh, the way that works is you'll use uh, an exposure time of let's say for example 30 seconds. Um, for the first between three and five seconds, you will move the camera, which will create the light painting across the image. And for the remaining portion of the photograph, you lock the camera in position on your tripod so that it stays steady to capture the background image. So basically, you need some bright light sources that will create, when you move the camera, those bright light sources will create kind of streaks across the image That's or cool. circles. And then you have the background, which is relatively darker and you need the, the longer part of the exposure to, to capture that. Yeah, and so thus far, um, in terms of uh, the equipment which I've got, um, the uh, the main two techniques which I tend to use with that are rotation and zoom. Um, that's because uh, the camera can be um, stuck in a relatively rigid position and you get uh, defined motion as opposed to a, a kind of a mess where you move the camera around. Although you could do it that way. And I have experimented with sort of moving the camera in a wavy motion and then trying to attach it to the camera for the um, fixed portion, but it's a little tricky. Um, I suspect if I had made some kind of bespoke equipment that that kind of possibility might um, present itself, but thus far, I don't have that. Um, so yeah, I mean, rotation photography and zoom where you change the focal distance of the lens. Zoom is a much more familiar technique for a lot of people. Um, what I've tended to find is that a lot of people will use zoom um, as a um, maybe a two second exposure so that you're only zooming. The difference with what I've tended to do um, is a, as I described, um, very similar to the rotation technique where you expose for a longer period of time and a portion of the photograph is the zoom and a portion of the photograph is the fixed um, part of the image. Cool. I guess it, it's easier to, to actually look at the photos and there is a, a clear video tutorial linked from your side that explains mm -hmm. it so pe people are interested. But me personally, I find it really cool, really kind of cool effects that you can get and I would like to, to try it more. Um, I have a question, a very specific question about those crystal balls, because I bought one years ago and it's a pretty small one. I would like to have a bigger one, but then I, I mean, I, I normally I don't use mine very much because it's uh, it's added weight in my backpack. If I were to get even even bigger one, it would be even more weight. So I, I tended to, to leave it at home, which is a pity. 
because you, you get really interesting shots out of that technique. Um, I would like to, to ask because my, my, my crystal ball is small and also what I see through it is, I mean, it, it, it's a little blurry. It has a lot of things like chromatic aberration and so on, which I guess it's kind of normal when it's just one lens. I mean, the, the cameras that we use, the lenses that, that we use, they have like 12 lenses in different groups that mm -hmm. are made in order to correct aberrations and stuff like yeah. that, which you don't get with a, with a simple sphere of glass. But are there better uh, qualities, spheres of glass that you can get? I mean, those lens balls that you <coughs> see, uh, I saw ads on Facebook for lens ball, and yeah. they, they, they go for quite some money with respect to the one I got for $5 back then. Sure. Is there a really difference? Is there other good quality crystal balls and low quality ones? Or is they're all the same, just a piece of glass and, and that's it? Uh, okay, so um, in terms of the first glass balls that I got, I got them in China. I bought it in a uh, local market in Shanghai. Um, I can't say what type of glass was used for that particular ball. It was just one in the market. So I was interested in doing refraction photography for a little while ahead of getting this. So seeing one in the market was super exciting for me and I snapped it up as quickly as I could. Um, these days, um, you will see uh, quite a number of cheaper uh, glass balls being sold um, online, as you describe. Um, Okay, so the people that I speak with about glass balls, because it has become quite a um, trend or fad in the last couple of years to take photographs with these things. Um, and um, they will say, that particularly those who are marketing the balls directly, that there is a difference between the lower quality glass and a glass which is called K9 um, that uh, they use for their products. Um now, obviously, I do realize that this could be a marketing thing that um, actually the cheaper versions of the glass balls are also made of K9, but I can't verify that. Um, so uh, I will say this, that the um, I've, I've been given some sample um, glass balls by some of these uh, lens ball companies. Uh, and um, yeah, the, uh, the quality of the glass uh, and the workmanship is good. So... Okay, fine. I mean, and for people who are not familiar with this, I mean, I got my ball, it's it's quite small, but it can work. Uh, at least if you have kind of a, a longer length, uh, longer focal length that can focus in relatively close. Uh, it works well. And it was like $5 bought online from China. So I mean, you, I mean, you should, you should not be aware of yeah. You can probably use that very well. Uh, I mean, all of the balls, no matter which um, company you buy them from, are going to scratch. They're probably going to chip because you um, you generally speaking want to um, put the photo uh, put the ball in a position that looks good on the ground, and there's always the potential for it to roll or to fall um, if you put it in a position like this. Sorry, pardon me. Um, so there's there's no getting away from that. Um, yeah, what they meant is that it's it's about making sure you have enough backlight behind the ball so that any errors or imperfections on the ball's surface um, either don't show up or they're minimized. Yeah, but I, what I wanted to say is that uh, there are 
quite cheap in general so it's something that you can start and experiment with a very yeah. very limited ex uh, investment so to speak to see if you if you have fun and you can get a bigger one maybe although to be honest i mean like 50 dollars uh, or 30 dollars i see some of these um prices that they are charging it's hardly an arm and a leg it's um it's less than a night out that many people will spend perhaps in london if they go out for a meal and some drinks isn't it um you know it's all relative and especially when you compare it to what people pay for camera equipment it's a drop in the ocean but yeah, five dollars if you can get it for cheapest chips and the experiment. Then maybe you um, move up to a a larger ball or a different color ball um, when you want to move into better images with uh, refraction photography. Good. So your website where you talk about this is creativephotographyschool.com. We said right with the hyphens between creative photography <coughs> and school. So uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but now I would like to talk uh, a bit more about your travels. Um, uh, you said you, you're currently living in South Korea, so you're originally from the UK. Yeah, I'm actually back in the UK at the minute, but okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're sky uh, Skyping from the UK right now. Uh, but yeah, I live in South Korea at present. Uh, why did you decide to move there and especially why did you decide to, to stay there? Well, um, I originally moved to South Korea um, as an English teacher um, and uh, I was working um, sort of more full-time as an English teacher really up until about two or three years ago. Um, I moved to South Korea because um, it was um, a well-paid job uh, that allowed me a, a good um, location to explore both South Korea and the wider region during my time off and my holidays and uh, that was an ideal opportunity for me to start to learn more aspects of photography that at the time I didn't know um, and to, to grow as a photographer in general through traveling and experimenting with what I do. What is to photograph in South Korea? Any specific I mean, nature, landscape? Is there any wildlife? Mm, all of those things, really. Uh, I mean, actually, um, South Korea is a, an undiscovered gem in terms of uh, things you can photograph there. Um, it uh, has um, really amazing-looking pavilions that sit over ponds with reflections, which look really nice. Uh, there, there's... Uh, the cities are um, very modern and some areas have got some really fascinating modern architecture uh, like Busan that was recently used in the um, Black Panther film as a, a backdrop for their work there. Um, Seoul has got the Dongdaemun Design Plaza that's um, a... Uh, the, the late Zara Hadid designed. Uh, it looks like a spaceship in the center of Seoul. Uh, so, I mean, you've got the modern architecture versus the more traditional architecture. And um, there's always a, a number of uh, festivals that are going on throughout the year, but focused, generally speaking, in spring and autumn. What about the rest of Asia? What's your, what are your favorite place to, places to go to there? That's a big question. <laughs> How can I answer that? Um, 
I have so many favourites. Uh, I, I really enjoyed... Um, uh, let's leave the politics alone for the time being in terms of some of these places. Uh, okay. you know, every, all the viewers know about some of the issues that some of these countries have. Um, but uh, so with that uh, being said, uh, I really love Myanmar and the people that I met in Myanmar are very friendly. Uh, and the, the photographic opportunities that you can find there are really second to none. Um, it took me... I'd actually visited most of the countries in Southeast Asia before I visited Myanmar. It was one of the last ones I visited. Uh, there is a, still a few I haven't visited yet, like the Philippines. Um, but, uh, yeah, Myanmar has been one of the last, and I wish it was one of the first that I had gone to. Uh, so Myanmar I like. Um, you recently went to Malaysia. Um, I really like uh, Malaysia as well. That's got a lot of... Um, things that uh, are really nice to photograph. Similar to Korea in a way, like it's got the modern buildings, the uh, more traditional architecture, and then a plethora of festivals uh, that you can enjoy. Slightly different because it's um, those are Indian and Chinese festivals on the whole, as opposed to what you get in South Korea. But nevertheless, there's some levels of um, similarity for what you get as a photographer. Um, I... Would like to go back to Mongolia. That's somewhere I enjoyed a lot as well. And um, when me and my wife did a lot of traveling a few years back, uh, we visited Kashgar up in northwest China. Uh, that uh, was a really fascinating place to visit. Although I touched on politics before, it does sound like it's in a bit of a desperate way right now, which kind of saddens me. Mm. Is, is that where there is a... Uh, there's a Muslim minority there, so there's some unrest because of that. Do you know very much about what's going on up there? No, not really. <laughs> okay. Um, it's um, what they've got up there. Um, they had some unrest. Yes, it's true. Uh, and um, there were some attacks by the Uyghur minorities in um, Beijing and in the Kunming railway station, there was a, a nasty incident. Um, the crackdown, though, has been severe. Um, they have uh, what the Chinese government are dubbing re-education camps mm -hmm. um, that um, various international um, monitors are suggesting are holding up to a million people Mm. Uh, in um, what sounds like indefinite detention while they are being re-educated. Um, obviously, anybody who's studied European history knows uh, what this kind of language is getting at. Um, and I hope that that history isn't repeated up there because it's um, really a nice part of the world. But... Yeah, that, that's not something that you hear a lot of talk about these days, uh, at least here in the West, something that is so remote, but it's, uh, yeah, as you said, it's a bit sad what is happening there without going too much into politics, but there is, there is unrest, there is repression, and, uh, but you said it's a, it's a beautiful region, right? Yes, um, although that said, I haven't been there um, since that one trip which I made mm. to that region, so I'm concerned about how it might have changed now, mm. anyway. I see. Um, any planned trips in the near future for you? 
Um, well, I'm obviously back in the UK right now. Um, when I do go back to South Korea, I'd like to um, stop off in Dubai on the way back. Uh, my sister lives there with her young family. So it'd be nice to stop there uh, to see them. And uh, if possible, maybe get out and do some photographs in Dubai as well. But that will be time dependent and family dependent. Um, after that, um, I'm toying with the idea of maybe stopping in Singapore and Malaysia to do some, one, do some photography and to catch up with some of my friends who are from there. But that's, um, again, uh, I need to think about whether I've got the schedule to do that or not. Uh, but by the way, you, you said you went to Korea to be an English teacher. Is that something that you still do or you're now a photographer full time? I'm um, now a photographer full time. Okay. I occasionally might get asked to do some English teaching if somebody's in um, need of somebody and they can't find somebody else. Uh, but that's the only scenario. Um, I'm not a full-time English teacher. I don't have a contract there. Good. Um, you also have a book out. It's actually been out for, for a few years. Uh, would you like to uh, talk a little bit about the book and if people <coughs> want to pick it up? I think it ties very much into what you we were discussing at the beginning of our conversation, right? Yeah, it's called Simple Scene Sensational Shot. It was produced, as you say, uh, around 2012. Um, it uh, is uh, published uh, in the UK by Ilex uh, Press, although uh, from what I understand, they've since been taken over by a group called Octopus. Um, in the US, it's um, published through Focal Press, um, and uh, they run that side of the operation on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, the book, um, broadly speaking, um, the subject was about how you would turn an everyday scene into a um, creative and interesting photograph. Um, the, the title pretty much describes the idea ethos of the book um in the way i try to write the book uh, i try to get away from it being um too driven into the technical jargon side of photography although that's obviously there um the way i best describe it um is um actually from my english teaching past when you go you can teach english which is a heavily grammar driven um subject or you can teach it in a more holistic approach where you teach um elements of the language uh where you learn the grammar through learning that other language point so the way this book is arranged is you don't necessarily get a book that says, okay, this is aperture, this is um, depth of field, this is um, shutter speed, and, and so on. Rather, it looks at techniques like how do you do bokeh, how do you do refraction photography, how do you do long exposure. So you can quickly get to use those techniques. Um, and through learning those techniques, you should naturally pick up what aperture does and what shutter speed does, if that makes any sense. Okay, I think that complements very much what you have in your website, which I recommend everyone to to have a look at because it's I mean it's a kind of a treasure trove of ideas of creating something uh, novel and interesting and different from the usual shots. And uh, and the book will put a link 
uh, to the book in the show notes as well. Um, okay, so uh, I just like to ask you one more question, which is a kind of a thought-provoking question that I sometimes ask all of my guests, uh, and it's kind of open-ended as well. So the question is, what drives you crazy? What drives me crazy? Uh, I think right now um, the um, the trend to reboot everything, like just um, the fact that um, in popular culture, be that music, films, um, photography, uh, the urge just to rather than look for something new and to come up with something that you, you did, even if it's got some influences, uh, to uh, the, the urge is more to just uh, um, directly copy something that did well in the past and then rebrand it as your own in the future. So um, Spider-Man, for instance, has been remade far too many times, in my opinion, now. Um there's going to be another Lord of the Rings coming out. I mean, there's so much material out there that why does it really have to be these things again? Uh, it's just like being stuck in a creative groundhog day. Very true. And I guess this applies to, to photography just as much it, it as it does. applies to, to music and, and cinema. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that's really all for today. I'd like to thank you for uh, for your time being with us today. And again, uh, your website, uh, creativephotographyschool.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. Just going to say to everyone that is following this that you can find this episode and all the other ones at ttim.photo, our website. And you can also join our Facebook community at ttim.photo slash Facebook. And as for me, you can find everything about me at my website, ucphoto.me, where you will also find links to all my various social media presences. And as for my co-host Ralph Velasco, who could not be with us today, as I said before, you will find everything about him at photoenrichment.com and on social media as at Ralph Velasco or Photo Enrichment as well. And now let's get out and shoot.